Hello, my name is Lynn Hilton Wilson, and I'm giving a special edition on a Come Follow Me example of Peter and Paul's paradoxical passages on women. I've mentioned most of these things throughout each of the different epistles in the Apostolic Church, but I thought it would be helpful to bring it together and to talk about the challenges that the early church had and why sometimes we interpret some of these statements as misogynist, or I've even heard it stated at, at Society of Biblical Literature meetings that the reason why we have a problem with gender in the world is because of some of these traditions that came from the biblical text. And I totally disagree. And I would like to defend um, not misogyny, but to defend the prophets and to say, let's really look what they're saying. Let's try to understand. And if we misunderstand, let's just wait because it doesn't fit with our modern prophets because we're blessed to have both the written word and our modern prophets. Earlier, I've discussed many times in the Gospels and in Christ's emancipation of women, how Christ changed dramatically the culture. But many people have said, what happened? If Christ made all these changes, why didn't it carry through? Well, I believe that not only did, um, does it take time to grow and nurture things, but seeds of truth have to sprout. And it was very difficult when before the printing press, before we already read information, before you're able to get the text of the Bible. And it was difficult and it took time for people to understand. It's interesting to me to notice that the most literate nation in the world was early Americana, where by the mid-1600s, 98% of Massachusetts is literate because they wanted people reading the Bible. And once they started reading the Bible, 200 years later, they're starting to say, why don't we have more equality between the genders? Why don't we give vote to the women? You know, so I just see these things took time to nurture and grow. It wasn't until we got into the text that we realized that there was a problem. When I refer to the apostolic church, I refer to the time of our Lord's death until the time of Trajan. And that's about 100. Um, Trajan actually works until 110. And we have records that John was living in Ephesus and guiding the church from Ephesus during the time of Trajan. So I'm going to approximately 33 to 100, but give or take a few years on either side. That is known as the Apostolic Church when John is still running the church. I also want to remind you that it's the Apostolic Church that recorded the Gospels. So with Luke's account, we have one story of a man, one story of a woman. All these are being recorded by the Apostolic church. And if the apostolic church has so many examples of women, not just in the gospels, but in the afterwards, in the epistles, that let's remember that if they are writing them down, that they were important to them. There are 180 references to women. 45 of those are names. 94 of the women are unnamed. 14 of the women are fictional, and the other ones are just references to them, you know, he, she, her. But of these 45 named women, there are 30 female disciples who are noble and upright. And half of those noble and upright women are after the death of the Lord. They're referred to as mothers and co-workers and witnesses and disciples and servants of God and sisters and even a deaconess and a wife and a yoke fellow, one prominent among the apostles. You know, these are all different translations, but I just want to remind you that sometimes when I ask my students, um, was Paul misogynist? They immediately say yes, and Peter too. But I would like to say the majority of the writings of Paul and Peter are the antithesis of that. 
that was the culture they were coming out of. That was where they were coming from. And so perhaps we're misreading some of those texts because when we look for female witnesses, when we look for women's voices, most of them are coming after, not before Christ's death. First of all are these house churches. We have these wonderful women who have opened up their homes. They're very wealthy, so they've got large spaces. And before we have church buildings, we see churches being gathered together in people's homes. In Jerusalem, it's at Mary's house, Mary, the mother of John Mark. And then we have Lydia and Chloe and Priscilla. We have women of faith like Tabitha and Eunice and Lois and Phoebe and Junia. And of these 94 unnamed women, we have some of those significant women um, in the entire New Testament. Do you remember in the book of Philippians, it says, These, those women which labored with me in the gospel. We've got unnamed women who were missionaries. And I love that I mentioned this when we discussed Philippians already, that Paul refers to um, a very close female companion as a yoke fellow. Is it his wife? I don't know, but it's someone who is leading the women in that part of the um, church in in Philippi. And in fact, in the book of Acts, we read that Philip's had four daughters. These are unnamed women, but with significant roles. These four daughters were virgins, which did prophesy. Now, by the fact that they're calling them virgins, that just means they're not married yet. They're young. That means they're probably under, you know, they're in their 10, 11, 12, 13, um, maybe 14 years old, but they're very, very young. And they already have the gift of, of the spirit. They're testifying. They're bearing their testimonies. That's Acts 21, verse 8 and 9. Also in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, all on the gifts of the spirit. In the NIV, it reads, now about the gifts of the spirit, brothers and sisters, and then I'll skip down a little bit here, eagerly desire the gifts of the spirit, especially prophecy. And remember, prophecy is defined in, in, by John the Revelator in, I think it's chapter 19, verse 10, as, uh, of Revelation, uh, as the testimony of Christ, the knowledge of Christ. And so he's saying, I want you women to seek a strong testimony and to bear it. And if you are doing so, you have the gift of prophecy. This is powerful. However, most of you are saying by now, but what about those challenging verses? Because there are a few that are attributed to Peter and Paul that are terrible. They talk about spousal suggestion. They talk about women's hair and dress, and they talk about being silent in the church. We have several different family codes of conduct, both in the Pauline corpus and in Peter's corpus. In Peter, it's 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1 through 9. And then in Ephesians, it's chapter 5, verse 22, through chapter 6 through 9. And in Colossians, it's chapter 3, verse 18, through chapter 4, verse 1. And then in Titus, it's chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. So let's look at some of those. They overlap, so I only have the time now to look through one. But I've already gone through all of them. Let's just talk about this, the topic of marriage. Um, Romans chapter 7, Corinthians chapter 7, Timothy chapter 4 and 5, Ephesians 5, Hebrews 13. They are all, um, and also 1 Peter chapter 3, they all talk about marriage in positive light. Let's start looking at some of these family codes of conduct through the eyes of 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands. And if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be one with conversations of their wives. Now, that's the King James. I appreciate um, John W. Welch's book called Charting the New Testament, which is in our archives. If you want to go to Book of Mormon Central, you can look at it for free under the archives. Um, it's 
he says a wife's obedience to her unchristian husband may influence the husband. Well, that's exactly what Peter's talking about there. He says, wives, if you're married to someone who's not a member of the church, cooperate with him, cooperate with him. And maybe because you're so kind, it'll help. I also like the New English Bible here. It says, in the same way, you women must accept the authority of your husbands so that if there be any of them who disbelieve the gospel, they may be won over without a word being said. Um, but I also want to go back to this word subjugation. I mentioned this many times throughout the year. It's, it's mentioned over and over in, in the gospels, six times in Peter and even more in Paul, you know, almost 30 times in the Pauline corpus. It comes from the Greek word, um, submit yourselves to every ordinance. Peter uses it in chapter two. And also in chapter five, Peter uses it. Likewise, you younger submit yourselves to the elder. Um, you know, no one's very upset about those two, but for some reason we get upset when it's um, in the context of marriage. But let's just go back to the original meaning. And we've talked about this whenever it's been mentioned, but I'll just review it quickly. It was first a military to arrange in fashion under the command of the leader. But in a non-military fashion, it had become a different definition. It meant a voluntary attitude of giving in cooperating, assuming responsibility and carrying the burden. So anytime you read the word subjugation or submission, remember it means to carry the burden, to share, cooperate, assume responsibility. And so when we go to first Peter chapter three and read about this commandment for a wife to submit to her husband, just add in that word, cooperate with your husband, work together, share responsibility. But what we're also saying is in 1 Peter chapter 3, it says, husbands, love your wives. This is a radical change from the day and age, especially in the Greco-Roman world, where marriages are made for economic and social and familial convenience. And we even have Greek and Roman dramas about keep your, keep your girlfriend beside you as a concubine and just marry your wife so that we can get the, the will taken care of and the money can be taken care of. But keep your sweetheart as your concubine. You know, there's all these comedies that talk about this. Marriage was not for love. And yet Christian marriage, we're told to learn to love each other. I'll read in commentary on this. This requirement was the new radical idea that Christian husbands who were to love and submit to their wives rather than to control them. That means love and cooperate with their wives rather than control them. It's very interesting, isn't it? I also appreciate our prophet's writings on this. Russell M. Nelson said, a husband and wife's stewardship is equally sacred and important. Do not involve any false ideas about domination or subordination. And earlier than that, Elder Packer said, in the church, there is a distinct line of authority. But in the home, it is a partnership with husband and wife equally yoked together, sharing in decisions, always working together. An earlier apostle said in 2004, Elder L. Tom Perry, in marriage, there is not a president or a vice president. The couple works together. They are on equal footing. I could keep going and going and going. Every new conference, I hear it again. Elder Bednar has said it recently. Elder Oaks has said it recently. Um, but let's move on to Peter. Chapter three, verse two, 
So he's talking about these unbelieving husbands. While they behold your chaste conversation, that's that's uh, meaning uh, in King James, that means your lifestyle, coupled with fear. Now, fear just means respect. It's, it's hard in King James. No wonder we have such a hard time with these words. Let's read other translations. In the New Jerusalem Bible, it reads the same verses. When they see the reverence and purity of your way of life. Now, that is not offensive. And here's the NAS as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. So if you're offended by the way some of these words are stated in the King James, just step out of the 16th century into the 23rd century and go read another translation. My favorite ones are the BYU New Testament commentary translations that they refer to as the new rendition. Continuing on now back in 1 Peter, chapter 3 now gives an example of Sarah as a good example to her um, to these sisters. And in the NIV it reads, you are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. So we're saying, we don't want you to be fearing. In, in, in a beautiful Christian marriage, we don't want you to have fear and, and anxiety. No, we want you to have respect and love and compassion. I love the NAB. It says, fear no intimidation. Or in the RSV, let nothing terrify you. In the Jerusalem Bible, don't worry. Now, this is the way Christian marriages are to be. Nothing is supposed to cause anxiety. We're supposed to work together to become joint heirs. And that's where Peter goes next in verse 7. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel. We talked about that when I talked about Peter. Um, That word, it means not weaker vessel as it's translated. It means a special vessel, a special body, um, a unique and wonderful prized element. Look at how it's used all through the New Testament in the Greek, and you'll get a better feel for that word. Don't be offended by it. As being heirs together of the grace of of life. So Peter is saying, Women are not inferior in any way. They are going to be heirs together. And we continue reading in verse 7 and verse 10 of Second Peter and Romans 8 and Titus and the Doctrine and Covenants, all this idea of becoming a joint heir, of working together in cooperation to make a unified marriage where both the husband and the wife share the responsibility and the burden of bringing forth a family. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7 also gives a warning. He's saying you have to do this so that your prayers are not hindered. And then in verse 8 to 9, I'll continue on in the NIV. Finally, all of you, be like-minded. Be sympathetic one to another. Be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing. Because to this you were called that you may inherit a blessing. You know, when we look at the King James Version, one reason why I quote so many other translations is because I feel like we miss, we, we we're giving our prophets a bad rap. They were, they are, they are encouraging mutuality in marriage. They are encouraging compassion and understanding and softness and gentleness, meekness and love unfeigned. So go to another translation and realize how many times we are talking about a wonderful relationship. It's no longer an eye for an eye. It's no longer a subordination and a strong patriarchy. You know, we are told again in another general authority, um, there's no patriarchy and matriarchy in the church. I also want to say that I believe Peter really did follow Christ. As we read um, that Paul 
tried to follow the best he could too. Now remember, Paul is a Pharisee. He comes from a very different tradition and he's a dynamic new convert, but sometimes it's hard to separate out some of those ideas that he was so entrenched in. So now let's look at some of the epistles. Remember, he only has half the story because it's only the writings. So let's start in 1 Corinthians. There are several challenging areas in 1 Corinthians. The first one is usually thought of as a Pharisaic dress code, chapter 11. And I completely disagree. I don't think it's talking about that at all. But in the Pharisaic thought, a man goes out bareheaded while a woman goes out with her head covered. And it's not just her head. The woman, if she was going to go outside, had to be completely covered head to toe, not even her ankles being seen and nor her eyes or her face. Um, everything is completely covered if she were a, the Pharisaic tradition living in a place like Jerusalem. Now, our artists always have the men covering their heads, but that tradition does not start until after the destruction of the Jerusalem temple um, in 70 AD. So when Paul is writing this letter, um, the women were only allowed out of the house covered and the men did not cover their heads. If you want to go back and look at my 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I talked a lot about it, but I just want to remind you that in the Pharisaic tradition, the women were veiled as a sign of subordination, as a sign we don't want you to be seen or heard if you're in the public. We'd rather you never be in the public. But in the Greco-Roman world, which is most of the Corinthian converts, it was a fashion statement. We find coins where the wives of the Caesars had beautiful um, silks coming from their heads. And we see a um, tradition on the sarcophaguses where women would often have a little veil on the back of their hair. And we also see religious cults where women would sometimes cover their hair coming out of the Egyptian traditions. And in the Aram um, Assyrian traditions, this is going way back, uh, a, a woman veiled her head because of a social status. It was used to show who was the wife. So the concubines did not get to veil their head, but the wife got to wear a veil so that everyone would know that she was the woman of status. But when we look at Paul's discussions on the veil, it means none of that. It doesn't have social status. It doesn't have subordination. The Christian veil, according to Paul's text in 1 Corinthians, is a veil of empowerment. Let's look at verse 2. Paul begins by saying, keep the ordinances as I delivered them unto you. And then he, skipping down a little bit, he says, I have received of the Lord that which I also delivered unto you. Now, the word ordinance in modern translation is often changed to be teachings. So I wanted to see how does Paul use this word? Specifically, how does Paul use this word in this epistle? So I look it over and it's parodices to hand over, to transmit, to deliver it up. And he uses it all the time, not only here in 1 Corinthians, but also in 2 Thessalonians and in Galatians and in Colossians. It's used in Mark. And consistently, they are used to represent teachings from God that were given to the apostles. Joseph Smith also taught us that Paul, and he later said the other early church members too, knew all the ordinances and blessings that were in the church. You can see that on the Joseph Smith Papers translation. So when Paul says, I'm proud of you for keeping the ordinances, he then follows it up by saying, but I would have you know. That's verse three. And whenever he says that, it's sort of like turning him around saying, you're keeping the ordinances, but you're not doing it right. And so he lines up this order of creation. And, he, and in King James, they use the word head. 
But that is a little bit tricky because the word in Greek, just like in English, there's two meanings. It means head and it means the source or the origin, like the head of the Nile or the origins of the of the River Jordan. You know, um, so when we read this, he organizes like the creation, this order of creation in a linear fashion. And he says, you know, God is the source of the son of God, who is the source of Adam as his creator, and who is the source of Eve as this rib tradition. But don't think that this word head in the King James refers to archon. That means ruler or chief. And Paul uses that word elsewhere when he wants to talk about a ruler or chief. But when Paul uses the word kafal, or what we translate as head in King James, he is talking about the source or the origin. And you can look up the other times he uses it too. He uses it for both the cranium and for the kafal. So he has this beautiful order of vacation. And in verse four, he says, every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonoreth his head. So just use it. Every man who covers his, his cranium, his skull, is dishonoring his source or his origin. Do you remember back to Genesis where we're told that God said, let us make man in our image. Now in the NIV, it says, let us make mankind in our image because the next verse says male and female created he them. You know, so it, it refers to both. But in Paul, he doesn't want the female here. He wants a line. He wants Adam or man. Man is Adam in, in Hebrew. Um, and it also means humanity. So it's tricky. But he wants them to represent um, their creator and he wants Eve to represent something different. So he says in verse five, it's just fine for women to go around without their head covering most of the time in the Christian tradition. But in verse five, he says, if you're in this ordinance, every woman that is praying and prophesying. So there's some kind of special ordinance that he's referring to um, where a woman is praying and testifying, because remember prophecy is testify, where her head needs to be covered. So if she's in this prayer and um, she's speaking um, out of inspiration, it, she needs to cover her head. It says, every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head, that's this physical head, uncovered, dishonoreth her source. And that source is Adam, Jesus, and the Father. So he's just gone through this order of creation so that we can understand where we're coming from. Now, in the ancient world, having the female attached to God was an empowering stance. But he goes on to explain more about this. He says the man was created in the image of God, and so he needs to represent the glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. What does he mean by that? Well, I'll tell you right away, he does not mean woman was created to glorify man. We already know that from, from, from Genesis. Woman was created to be a partner, to be a companion. My favorite translation, the T-E-B, says he was created, um, she was created as his one from before. It is bone of his bones. Um, so how then is woman the glory of man? Well, remember the word man is humanity. How is woman the glory of humanity? The only way humanity could come is through woman. So in this ordinance, the female is representing the glorious nature of all of humanity. And the man is standing in the place 
of the Son of Man or of his, his head. So in this prayer, we have symbolic roles of Adam and Eve. And Adam is representing his creator and Eve is representing all of mankind. And so as Eve comes before God in prayer, as if we were before our creator, our source, she is to humbly veil her glorious nature. It says in verse 10, for this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. So we not only are veiling because we are respecting our source, our God, we are and humbly coming before him, but we are veiling because it shows power. Now, in the King James, it says you have to have power on your head to join in this ordinance. But in the NIV, it reads, a woman ought to have a sign of authority on her head because of the angels. So to enter this ordinance, the women need to have a sign of authority. But what is the angels? Now, Joseph Smith only made one change to this entire chapter or this entire section um, on the veil. And this is very early. You know, he's doing this in 1832, way before any of the ordinances for the temple are uh, um, restored. And so he changes that um, covering the head to a covering. He has to have a covering on her head because of the angels. Well, that is beautiful because the word atone in Hebrew is covering. But remember, at the um, dedication of the temple, of the Salt Lake Temple, Brigham Young taught that we needed to have um, angels to teach us the signs in order to return back to the presence of God. And so by just applying that statement that Brigham said at the dedication of the um, cornerstone of the Salt Lake Temple, women are in a place where they're having administration of angels and they need to be empowered with authority to pass by these angels in order to return to their creator. Continuing on in verse 11, it says, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man in the Lord. This is such a beautiful reciprocal relationship. Adam was created first and Eve came from Adam. You know, they needed the stem cells from the XY to get the XX, uh, but, or whatever way the Lord did it. Um, but the next generation, the man comes out of the woman. They are completely interdependent. If we are doing things in the Lord, it only works if we work together. And I like another translation as well as verse, of verse 12. For as the woman is of the man, even so is the man also by the woman, but all things of the Lord. Then we have two whole chapters on the gifts of the Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. And remember, every time it says brethren, it refers to men and women. And the whole thing is encouraging all the saints, men, women, children, old, young, join in the gifts of the Spirit. Interestingly, in these gifts of the Spirit, five times um, from chapter 11 and 12 and 14, it is referenced that women are to be preaching and prophesying and sharing in the worship service. If we look at all of the Pauline corpus, starting with Romans and including Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Timothy, Titus, and also the book of Acts. So everything that had Paul's influence, remember Acts is written by Luke and Luke is Paul's companion. So if we look at all those 12 times, we see counsel for women to participate in church services, to be speaking and prophesying. So now when we go to chapter 14, to this difficult section, just remember, we have all these many, many, many statements encouraging women to speak and serve and, and build the kingdom of God. 
chapter 14, verse 31. For ye all may prophesy one by one that all may learn and all may be comforted. Now, remember at this time, they're having a real problem with people speaking at the same time and they're drinking all the, uh, the sacrament wine and drunk before the others show up. And, and, you know, he's really having a problem with order in the meetings. And he's talking about this over and over in this letter. I call it the spanking letter because he's just giving them corrections. But, um, in verse 32, it says, the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. And in verse 33, for God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, the churches of the saints. So then we go on to now verse 34 and 35. Now, these two really don't quite fit the context. We've just been talking about the gifts of the spirit. And then he says, let your women keep silent in the churches, for it is not permitted for them to speak. But they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. And as they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for a woman to speak. <laughs> you know, this, this really contradicts everything that he just said. I mean, it's just within a few verses. It, verse 31, he just said all the women should be prophesying. This is really changing. So let's look at some other translations. Um, the, the other says the woman should be reverent. Another said the woman shouldn't be chattering. Another one says the woman should be under obedience rather than supportive. You know, um, Joseph Smith changes it and says the women were not permitted to rule in the church rather than speak in the church. And Joseph Smith takes it right back to authority, as I mentioned earlier. Um, so what is the problem here? To me, it looks like the, well, it's not just to me. The, I've read this from the textual scholars. For thousands of years, people have been studying the text in Greek, and they say, there's a disconnect here. You know, these two verses don't belong. They, 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 they were put in here. So then they look, could this be a later edition? Well, it does sound like it's coming from the Gnostics. It sounds like the Judaizers ideas. It sounds like the false teachings. It sounds like leftover Pharisaic ideas. Well, also then I took one of my favorite scholars and went back and said, was this these two verses in the oldest text. So he went to the, we don't know who was the oldest, but we know that the text from Ephesus was guarded over by John for a long time. And these verses were not there. These verses also were added in different orders elsewhere because they didn't know where to put them. I think they're an addition. I don't think they're Pauline. So when you come across these difficult verses, ask yourself a few questions. Did the author mean this? Was there a specific problem? Is this message consistent in scripture? What do other translations say? Did Joseph change this verse? What was this question that brought out this answer? And most importantly for me, is this in keeping with modern revelation? Because if it's not part of our restored church, we don't have to worry about it. So let's now look at another challenging one. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9 through 14. This whole section is on replacing worldliness or self-promotion with selfless service. So some of the vocabulary is tricky. So let's now go to a topic of prayer. First Timothy chapter two, verse nine says, when women pray, they should be shamefaced and have sobriety. We don't use that word very often, shamefacedness. I haven't heard it ever on uh, <laughs> the last year outside of scripture context. So let's look at some modern translations. The Jerusalem Bible Women should pray quietly and modestly, or the NAS, modestly and discreetly, or the RSV, modestly and sensibly. 
I also appreciate John W. Welch's translation here. In good taste and in a manner that brings honor, honorable respect. But this is very different. We want the women there in a, in a way that will bless the church. Look at verse um, 11 of chapter 2. Let the women learn in silence with all subjection. That's the KJV. Well, any of us who are learning in silence would know better. I, I raised my kids um, in different countries. And in France, there was no talking in the schoolroom. Starting in second grade, no talking. The children sat down and did not speak again until they were called upon by the teacher. This is very different than, uh, and they learn so fast. We're talking about a quiet environment possibly here. I'm not sure, but let's just think about, isn't it always easier to learn in a quiet environment? The NEB says, a woman must be a learner, listening quietly with um, due submission. The JB says, during instruction. So the bottom line is all of these women are to be learning. All of these women are given guidelines on the best way to learn. Now, this is a dramatic change. Remember, in the Judaic world, there are statements in the Mishnah. Now, that's written a little bit later. But there are statements that say, um, he who teaches her daughter the, um, the law, the same as taught her lechery. There are statements that say, um, don't allow your women to become literate because they'll be a pain. Uh, we don't want them to learn to read and write. You know, we have all this stuff that, that took women away from this. And now in Christianity, we have a liberation. As I mentioned, the, Christ was the first feminist. And I believe the early apostolic church is encouraging this. We want women learning the gospel. We want them um, learning. And we're going to now show you that it's best to learn in a quiet environment. However, in chapter 2 of 1 Timothy, verse 15, it sounds like Paul's giving some pretty misogynist advice here. You know, your women shouldn't be talking. They shouldn't be invited. You know, it sounds like he's just punching them in the nose. I'd like to read from the NASB translation, though, from 2.15. But women will be preserved through bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. Well, that doesn't really sound too right, because a lot of women can't bear children. Let's just talk about the great Sarah. Uh, how many years was she infertile? And how many women have never had the chance to bear a child? I mean, that doesn't make sense at all. Women are covered by the atonement of Jesus Christ. Of course they will be saved. So I'm very grateful that Joseph Smith changed this verse. And he didn't say a woman will be saved through childbearing. He said they. Adam and Eve, humanity, if we, the purpose of this earth is to bring forth bodies for the spirit children of the sons of God and to learn to control those bodies and to come unto Christ by allowing those bodies to learn and adapt line upon line. And so the Joseph Smith translation changed that they shall be saved in childbearing. Does everyone bear children? No, of course not. But it is not a requirement for women. It is a requirement for men and women to marry and bear children. I also appreciate um, the, another translation. This is the ISV, the International Standard Version. Even though she will be saved through the birth of the child, if they continue in faith, love, holiness, along with good judgment. So he's saying the woman will be saved, and I would like to add the men, everyone, by the birth of the child, with a capital C, 
referring to our Savior, referring to our Creator. It is He who will save us. To me, this fits doctrinally much better with what I understand. But I do believe that Christ's emphasis to cut down misogyny and to raise up women and to heal the family unit. It's horrific for a man who has to always be a, a master working with a slave to ever develop charity. Whereas if he sees that they need to work together, that they need to be a unified family organization, that they can treat everyone with respect and dignity, whether a child or a slave or a wife, you know, let's treat everyone with love. I see the things that Christ taught us about servitude overlapping into the apostolic church. And I hope as you study this year, the New Testament, that you will step back and take a pause at some of these very difficult verses as I've combined them here to realize that our Savior has tried to open the doorway for mutuality in all relationships, not just in marital relationships, but so that we can be kinder and more gentle and respectful, that we can love as Christ loved, is our, my prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.